0: Fun part. Time for me to introduce this speaker here. Back in the late 80s, uh, I was just getting into AA, and I went to these little small meetings, you know, little people sitting around. And I got to go to assembly in Macon. I met this gentleman there, heavy into service work. Uh, He had. uh, the kind of little meetings you get together with, you know, the workshops and stuff like that. He was he was always up on the podium there, you know, and I began to find out there was like twelve or sixteen hundred people there, and I began to find out that by going down there, it broadened my world, you know, it, it broadened my uh, my AA, and I really realized AA was really big. But I really appreciate this man for his, his service work, and he, and he's always been there, and it's a pleasure. For me to introduce you, and let's give a big Cartersville welcome, Brookins B from Milledgeville, Georgia. Thank
1: you, man.
2: My name is Brookins Beckett, and I'm from Milledgeville, Georgia. Boy, y'all are a bunch of beautiful, diseased people sitting out there.
0: It's good to be back
2: in Cartersville with my old buddies. I've been up here a number of times. I've talked up here a long time ago. And I wanted to come up and play golf with the guys, but uh, I got a little back trouble, and, uh, so I can't play tomorrow. But I know some people here. It's John, Jerry's going to play, and Charlie and uh, Gene going to play. Where's Butch? Butch is going to play. Last time Butch played, he missed a holy one by four strokes. And I, I'm listening, I might as well tell you that I, I'm a member of the Baldwin County Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Millsville, Georgia. We meet seven days a week, and if you're ever in Middlesbrough look us up, we'd be glad to have you. And my sobriety date is December 2nd, 1983. I never plan on staying sober this long. <laughs> I just want to get that woman back in the house and get everything settled down. I can go back doing what I want to do. Thank God it didn't turn out that way. I just, I'm just proud to be here. And uh, Where's Paul? Paul G. Is he back there anywhere? They tell me he's got 40-something years of sobriety. Yeah. He's so damn dry, he's a fire hazard.
1: <laughs>
2: Glad to see you, Paul. And I see a lot of people here that I've, I've been in service with, Win back there. And uh, that's what it's all about, is giving back what we've so freely been given to us. Like the fifth tradition said, our primary purpose is to stay sober and help another suffering an alcoholic. And we can't help one if we're sitting home on our butt doing nothing. So that's what we do. We reach out and see it, help another suffering an alcoholic. Now I'm looking forward to hearing the Alanon in the morning. Uh, she knows the real story. Yeah. And if, meet, meet the Alanon speaker in the morning. My wife's suit sure ain't. Stand up, baby. And I'm going to explain to you right now. Uh, she is my first and third wife, and I'm wait a minute, I'm her first and fourth husband. Y'all keep it up, you need a school card. <laughs> and I get into all that after a while. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Julia in, the, in a Sunday morning, and uh, and uh, Paul tomorrow night's going to speak with. Us. He's from Ohio. He's, he's one of them Yankees. <laughs> yeah. And uh, y'all know what a a damn Yankee is, don't you? That's a a Yankee that comes down and stays. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're glad to have y'all down here. uh, I was telling Julia a while ago, you know, I love the way these Southern women talk. They talk so slow by the time they say I'm not that kind of girl a lot of times they are. And I, lo- I love what y'all doing in that laugh. That's what this whole thing is about, right? It's having fun. If you're not having the fun in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're not doing something right. And there's one sentence in our big book on page 132. It's right in the middle of the page. There's 16 lines above it, 16 lines below it, and two little words on each side of it. And that sentence says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And I'm enjoying life now. I'm living with the woman that I have loved all my life, almost all. For 63 years now, we've been associated off and on,
1: <laughs>
2: and I'll get into that later on. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of people get up here and talk about the homes they grew up in, that it was abused, a lot of liquor and drinking, cussing, fussing, going on. In there. I didn't grow up in that kind of home. I grew up in a nice home. My daddy was a hardworking young man. My mother was a housewife. She took care of me and my sister. And uh, we didn't have all that, that abuse and stuff in, the, in, in our home life. And I don't know why, why I'm like I am tonight. I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. My sister's not. My sister's four years younger than I am. She, uh, when she was in the eighth grade, she told mom and daddy she wanted to be a medical technologist. She graduated from high school. She went to University of Georgia. She graduated 5A Kappa. She went to Augusta. So to learn how to be a medical technologist in in the medical center of, uh, uh, the medical center, what is it, MCG? MCG College of Medical Doctors. She met one man. She married him. They got four kids. They all college graduate, and they all got good jobs. And I don't know where my sister went wrong. She had a lot of potential to to get (laughs) here. I love that girl today, uh, and she's a, she's a fine example of a normal person. The only thing I know about normal is uh, sitting on a washing machine. So I'm not normal myself. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> my life changed in, in uh, 1948. I grew up in a little small town in middle Georgia, and my daddy got a job in a place called Sandersville, Georgia. Y'all ever heard of Sandersville? It's the biggest town of its size in the world. Did that help y'all? <laughs> and uh, I started school on November 1st, 1948. I was 14 years old. And a few days later, I met the prettiest, sexiest little girl you've ever seen in your life. She was blonde-haired, like a little Cupid doll standing there. And 15 minutes after I met her, I says, I'm going to marry you someday. And she ran home and told her mama what she this crazy guy up the street. But we started going together a few days after that. Then that Christmas afternoon, I got up that morning, and my mom and daddy and my sister and I had our Christmas at the house. I went over to her house in the afternoon to care of her, her, her Christmas present. And her mom and daddy were sitting at the t- kitchen table with her aunt and uncle. And they had a mason jar in front of them. It had white liquid in it. And up until this time, my drinking career consisted of some eggnog at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and a couple of sips out of a beer can when I go fishing with Daddy and his guys. And her daddy, Serene's daddy, pushed that bottle across the table and said, Boy, you want a drink? I said, Yes, sir, I'll take a drink. (laughs) I picked up that bottle, and I turned it up, and I took a big swallow out of it. And I remember a couple of things about that first drink. First of all, uh, I remember what it smelled and tasted like. It smelled and tasted like something you would sit in and remove a tattoo. (laughs) It it, it, was pretty horrible stuff. But there's another thing I, I remember about that first drink. I swallowed it, and I could feel it going down my esophagus to my stomach, and when it got there, it acted like an explosion went off. It went down through my legs and up through my arms and came out through my ears, and I came together for the first time in my life. I walked in there, a scared 14-year-old kid, and I could talk to these adults. I could joke with them. And I'm thinking, my God, if one is does this to you, two's better. hmm Took three more drinks out of that bottle that day. I have to tell you what happened. I got drunk. What's the next? Sick. Knee-walking drunk the first time I ever drank. Hugging that commode going, oh, God. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. They put me to bed, and I slip it off, and I woke up a few hours later, but I couldn't wait to do it again. I couldn't wait to do it, because I remember those times when I had that peace of mind that, that I was okay. All that fear and low self-esteem and feeling and vanished in a, in a wink. It was gone. And I chased that for years and years and years. Sure thing was 12 when I started going with her. I was 14. We went together six and a half years in high school, and... I had gone off to college on a football scholarship. I messed that up with drinking. And I finally, when she graduated, she went to Atlanta to uh, to work in an insurance company up there. I was up there one weekend, and we decided we'd get married. So we eloped from Atlanta, Georgia, on a Greyhound bus.
1: <laughs>
2: we pooled our money. We had $146 between us. And at that time, Georgia had a, had a, a law that once you got your marriage license, you had to wait three days to get married. Any of y'all remember that? That was true. You had to wait three days before you'd get married. But there was one town in Georgia, right down next to the Florida line, called Folkestone. They didn't recognize that law. And you could get, you could, you could get married any time down there. So we got a Greyhound bus out of Atlanta toward to Jacksonville, Florida, because she had an aunt and uncle living down in uh, Jacksonville, that we thought would help us find jobs once we got there. We stopped off in Waycross, and we went to a restaurant. We were sitting there, and a the lady came up. I said, lady, how, do, how do we get the folks and She said, y'all want to get married, don't you? <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am, we'd like to. She said, you don't need to go to Waycross. She said, I got a friend who's a technician at the hospital. I said, you go to the hospital, he take your blood test. He'll run it, go back and pick up the results. You can get married right here in Waycross. And that's what we did. We went to the clinic. He took our blood. We went to the Green Frog restaurant, got a cup of coffee. We went back to the, uh, to the uh, clinic, got our papers, walked out of the side door of the courthouse in the back, I mean, in the clinic in the back door of the courthouse, and we was married Now, in an 15 minutes after we hit Cross, Then we caught the next bus to Jacksonville. Well, sir, we got an idyllic thing going here. I got the woman I love. And we're going to ride off in the sunset and live happily ever after. We've got a problem in this marriage. We've got an alcoholic in it that don't know he's an alcoholic. And I drank every We didn't have all that much money, but I drank every time I could. And she hated the weekends to come because I was going to drink on the weekend. Don't mess with me on the weekend because that's drinking time. But well, I got drafted in the Army because I didn't show back up to college. And we went to Maryland. And I, I worked inside of a mountain for two years. And I still doors open up to go in. I was a cryptographer. That's coding, decoding messages. Now, when they told us we was going to crypto, I said, I don't want to go to crypto. I want to, I, want to, I want to go to OCS. They said, sir, I said, you ought to be proud to be selected to go to cryptography school. I said, why? He said, well, you're in the top 10% of the personnel in the Army. I'm thinking to myself, if I'm in the top 10%, we're in trouble, baby, big time. That scared me worse than atomic bomb. Day.
1: <laughs>
2: but anyhow, I became a cryptographer, and I went up there and, and coded and decoded messages for two years and got out. We went to the University of Georgia then. That's when I picked up my second addiction. It was called coeds. <laughs> Had a lot of pretty southern girls up there, and uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm 20. 5, 24, 25 years old by now I'm a man of the world right and I can really con some of these young ladies and I, I tell my wife I say, I'm said, i going to the library to study tonight I don't know where the hell the library is at University of Georgia <laughs> I, I go pick up one of the co-eds and we go out well she caught me as we always get caught we know that she, moved, she caught me at 10 o'clock in the morning. She asked me what I was doing, and I would just had been drunk enough Saturday night. I told her, yeah. I got a girlfriend. Well, about 2 o'clock that afternoon, we were living 10 miles out of Athens at another house, and we'd moved up a stick of furniture we had. She was going to move me away from that so I wouldn't be tempted.
1: Hell, you can drive
2: into town. You know, only 10 miles. And we got out there, and it started getting worse. Or as we could say in Alcoholics Anonymous, worse yeah, we know what we're talking about when we get worser. And I want to tell you I want to tell you a little story that will illustrate to you just how I was when I drank. I uh tell a story of uh, two guys in Atlanta drinking t- drank it one day. They've been drinking a couple of hours and one of them said to the other and said, You know, this is a unique building we're in. Said so it's twenty-two stories tall. Because the contour of the building and the air currents coming down the street, said you can get up on top of this building and you jump off. You get down about the fourth floor. Said to pick you up, and set you down right where you jumped off.
1: <laughs> the second guy said, "You
2: crazy?" He said, "Come on, I'll show you."
1: <laughs> so these,
2: so these two guys go to the top of this two-story building. The first guy said, "Watch me." And he sails off. He gets down about the fourth floor. Comes out, puts down, puts the thing you ever seen right where he jumped off. Second guy kind of rubbed his eyes. I don't believe I saw that. First guy said, you do it. He said, no, you do it one more time. Let me be sure I think I saw what I think I saw. <laughs> he said, well, watch me. Sales off again. Fourth floor, comes back, says, that's the first thing you've ever seen. He said, I've done it twice. You go ahead and do it. Second guy decided he'd jump off that 22-story building. He jumps off and spat right on the sidewalk. He went made a mess down there. First guy goes back to the bar and bells up to the bar. Bartender comes in and sets a drink down in front of him, looks at him and says,
1: you know Superman, so you're a son of a bitch when you drink. <laughs>
2: And I was.
1: I really was.
2: There was a lot of physical abuse in that that marriage. I never hit her first, but she'd always slap me, or knock a drink out of my hand or something, knowing she was going to get hit. And the way I would punish her every once in a while, I'd put her in a car. We had a 56 Chevrolet convertible. I wished I had it back today. And I said, get in the car. Hey, I come to find out that's the first step in the alcoholics. Mom was get in the car, <laughs> but I tell her get in the car, and uh, she knew what was gonna happen. I was gonna take her for a ride down through the highway, spin out in the roads, ride through the woods. I, 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 I had no fear when I had my liquor in me. And one night she done something I didn't like, and she loved loved violence. She still has a bunch of at the house now. She raises them and all that. So I took a violence and I put him in the floor and I stomped him. I told her, get in the car. And I went out the door and she slammed the door, night latch caught. I turned around and busted the glass out with my left hand and reached in with my right hand under the night latch. She had ran into the bedroom and grabbed a single barrel 12 gauge shotgun. And she's standing 28 foot across that living room. I know how far it was because I measured it later on. And she had that gun cocked and pointed at me, but I got my courage in me in the night. I woke up to that gun barrel and it's sticking right there. And she's standing there shaking and crying, don't know what I'm fixing to do. And I look her in there and I said, pull the trigger or either put the gun down. As soon as she let me have the gun, I slapped her and said, next time you pull the trigger. And then we went to the hospital and had my hand sewed up where well, I would cut it pretty badly. A few weeks later, a few months later, we don't know the timeline on all this. It's kind of blurry, blur, but maybe a month or so later, she got courage enough to leave me. And she took off. And thank God she did. Because, see, this is a woman I love more than anything in the world. And I used to tell her, if you leave me, I'll hunt you down and kill you. Ain't that love? Ain't that sick? I was a sick puppy, and I didn't know it. I didn't know how sick I was. Well, she left me, and uh, I went to see her one time after that at her daddy's house. I took one look at her, and I knew it wasn't any use to try to put this thing back together. I could see the distrust, the hate, and all in her eyes. I never bothered again. But she was up here like she would be in the morning. She would tell you she slept with a gun under her pillow for two years, afraid I might knock on her door at any time, and not knowing what I might do. Well, you know what I did? I quit drinking. I got out show her, it ain't the damn liquor, caused us to get divorced. I put the plug in the jug for five and a half years. I didn't drink another drop, but nothing with alcohol in it. I finally meet another woman, and uh, Betty and I get, get married. She already had a son by a previous marriage. And uh, Betty and I had a formal wedding. It was white shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we got married and had a son. And while, a few months later, she comes home from the doctor. She says, I'm pregnant again. And there's 18 months difference between my son and my daughter. And Teresa was born. And uh, I adopted Troy, the eldest boy of my previous marriage. I'm not drinking. I'm doing this sober. I'm sober. No. I'm doing this without drinking. I'll put it that way. And... Uh, after five and a half years, i moved up in my company, making more money than I'd ever thought I'd ever make. Traveling around 13 uh, 13 states, calling on paper mills and paint companies and rubber companies, making good money. Well, I thought one day at, at a convention, I'm damn alcoholic. For she used to call me alcoholic, and I'd say, No, I'm not. But anyhow, I started back drinking. Three years later, Betty divorced me because she was tired of my crap. Everything came back, except it came back worse than it was when she divorced me. I quit drinking again, about 19 months. I come to find out my problem wasn't quitting. My problem was I couldn't stop starting again. And I think the reason I could put the plug in the jug for a few months or years and stuff like that, I always knew that was a drink down the road. And after Serena and I got back together, and I'm on my best behavior when we started dating back, she's coming off her third divorce. And I, I called her. I knew we kept in touch with each other all through those years that she was married to somebody else and I was married to Betty and, and all that. I'd call a couple three times a year and talk to her. And she'd answer the phone. I said, what are you doing? Why are you calling me? I said, because I love you. And she said, well, he's outside walking the dog. I can't talk long or something like that. And we'd talk a few minutes and hang up. And then uh, I was in Atlanta one, uh, one day, and I called her at work. I said, let's have coffee. So we, we met and had coffee at a restaurant. A few months later, I was in Atlanta. I called her at work. I said, have lunch with me. She said, okay. I said, you named the place, and she did, the most expensive place in Atlanta. <laughs> and we met for lunch, and we were sitting there having a beer. I said, when did you leave Bruce? She said, I hadn't left him. I said, you're a liar. She said, how do you know I left him? I said, only him and I and my mom and daddy know I've left him. I said, it's very simple, sir. Darling. My mom and daddy and her mom and daddy only live four houses apart. <laughs> but the, what gave it away was, for the last two weekends in a row, she was home in her own personal car. They never came in her personal car. They came in his company car. So I knew there was something going on. And she said, yeah, I, I, I've left Bruce. I said, well, I'd like to start seeing you again. Well, I don't know where I want to see you or not. I said, well, that's okay. I said, I'm going to Texas next week to work. I'll be out there. I'll fly out of money, fly back on Friday. I'll call you to your office. If you want to go out, I'll come up Saturday and we'll go out. And that started a, a, another relationship. And uh, I was staying in a motel, by the way, because... She wasn't divorced yet. And I didn't want to be put in a position that if I was called to court about anything, this guy was, had gone to law school, but he wasn't practicing law. He was working for an insurance company as an investigator of some kind. If he brought some charges against her, uh, that I could get up and swear. I hadn't been to bed with her. I wanted to. <laughs> and uh, so we dated We dated for about six weeks like that. I'd come in on the weekend, go to the motel, go pick her up, we'd go out. Finally, uh, she said, well, you can stay. And I started staying with her. She got divorced. And every weekend I was there, I said, certainly let's get married. She said, nope, I ain't going to marry you. And one weekend I said, let's get married. She said, nope, I ain't going to marry you. She said, do me a favor. Don't ever ask me to marry you again. If I want to get married, I'll ask you. I said, you've got a deal. Three years later, we were sitting there one Friday night. And she said, uh, what you doing next weekend? I said, well, why? She said, you want to get married? I said, I can't. I got a fishing trip to North
1: Carolina.
2: <laughs> I had, a, I had a, some customers from a paper mill take the Outer Banks fishing. And she said, well, I really didn't mean next weekend. She said, I'd like to get married in a church this time, See? The problem was, before, we'd always got married by the Justice of Peace. The first time, we got married by the Justice of Peace in Ware County. The second time I got married was by the Justice of Peace in Baldwin County. The many times she got married, I don't know where they came from, it was somewhere. But anyhow, uh, she said, no, let's get married in the church. And so we got married in the church this time. My mom and daddy was there. Her mom and daddy was there. My three kids were there. We done it in the church this time so it would take, you know. And uh, so we, we go to Atlanta, and we set up housekeeping, idyllic place. We're going to set up housekeeping in Atlanta. She had a great job in Atlanta. I was traveling, so it didn't matter where I lived. And uh, I'm drinking a lot. One thing I can never understand, I'm on the road about 70% of the time. Is anybody in here with a telephone company? No? I can never understand how in the hell they can smell it over a telephone. <laughs> This was back before computers and pages and cell phones and all. So every night about 10 o'clock, I'd call home and uh, see if I had the messages from the, uh, my boss or from a customer or anything. And every night I'd say, hey, baby, you've been drinking. I'd say, How in the hell she know that?
1: <laughs>
2: and uh, anyhow, we started setting up housekeeping. And I'm drinking more than I ever drank. I'm getting higher in my company tonight. I'm on the board of directors by now. I'm making a lot of money. I'm doing good. I had arrived, as Bill says in his story. Well, we got an alcoholic in this home, and we're having fussing and fighting, and but no this time there's no physical abuse. It might be mental and emotional, but there's no physical abuse, and I want to tell you why. Before we got married, she was sit, we were sitting there one night before we went out to eat uh, dinner. She said, I'm going to tell you something. She says, you're the only man that ever, ever put a hand on me. She said, my daddy never even spanked me when I was a little girl. She said, neither one of my other husbands have ever hit me. And she said, you big son of a bitch, if you ever hit me again, I'll kill you in your sleep. And I never got drunk enough to get
1: that.
2: <laughs> never did. I get so mad at it sometimes I want to knock her through the wall and I draw back. And I said, if I do, I can't sleep in tonight. <laughs> But well, we started having a lot of trouble. She came home one day and she says uh, there's some people at work that's going to this hypnotherapist. And they are auto suggesting to them that they don't smoke. And some people at work is quitting smoking. Said, I understand it works on alcohol too. I think you ought to go. I started going to this hypnotherapy. Anybody in here have been hypnotized? It's a trip, ain't it? It is a trip. I mean really, it's great. And uh, I'd go over there Friday afternoon about 3 o'clock, lay on his couch, soft music, low lights, and he'd do, I don't even know what he said now, but boy, it's just like the world would lift off my shoulders. I'd get out of that office and I'd tip over down them steps, get in that car, go down Fulton uh, uh, Industrial Boulevard, Pistone Industrial Boulevard, the 285 get on 285 going around Smyrna in that Friday afternoon traffic and I'd just be cussing and get home I had to take a drink it didn't work with me so then we get me a psychiatrist at the medical college of Georgia in Augusta and I go over there and I got teed off at her right away she had two chairs at about a 45 degree angle table in the middle with an ashtray in the middle that's when you could smoke in offices and uh, she didn't have a couch. I had never seen a psychiatrist without a couch, y'all. That, that kind of cheated me off right there. Well, she done her mumbo jumbo over me, and uh, that didn't take either. My alcohol is picking up. Well, I got a chance to move out of Atlanta. I, did, I didn't like it. I don't like it. If anybody's here from Atlanta, I'm sorry. I don't like Atlanta, okay? Too big. And I've always wanted to get out of there, so I said, if I buy a house at Lake Sinclair, will you move down there? And she'd always wanted to live on that lake. We used to ski down there when we was in high school, in college. And uh, so I went to Millsville and bought a lake house, and we moved. And she's thinking if we get him out of Atlanta, at all the hustle and bustle, he won't have to drink so much. Well, people, when you get to the lake, there's a reason to party every night, ain't not
1: there? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, the drinking picked up. They're fussing and fighting and picked up. It's like her mouth is connected to that liquor bottle. Every time my hand touched that liquor bottle, her mouth flew open. i get that chin music.
1: Yep, 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 yep.
2: Like a little feist dog running around behind you trying to bite you on the ankle. And it, it, she just couldn't be quiet. And uh, so I started fishing a lot. I was telling Mike I'd take my, my beer, my chasers, my liquor and all, and go down to the dock fish all night. I caught some fish, too. Yeah. And uh, so I've done a lot of fishing at night. And it got so bad one night. See, when I got my courage in, I don't have any fear. You know, I found that out on Christmas Day, 1948. When I drank, that fear goes away. In fact, we used to drink for football games in high school to take the fear away. We used to call them butterflies in our stomach. Is that what y'all call it? Euphemism for fear? Butterflies in the stomach? Yeah. And we take some... A few drinks of alcohol, of moonshine liquid before the ball game, and so uh, we are having all that in at the, in the, in the, in the lake, and uh, I got my. F- See, I don't drink before five o'clock. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't drink before five o'clock. Every hardworking young man drinks after five o'clock. You know, to kind of steady your nerves after a hard day's work. Got so steady sometime I couldn't move,
1: <laughs>
2: but I started drinking at 5 o'clock, and what my drinking consists of a quart of liquor from 5 o'clock to 8, 8.30 at night, top, topped off with uh, six PBR beers. And then I did not keep her up half the night talking about things she did 25 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so one night I go to the liquor store, get my bottle, come home, I'm drinking. About 7 o'clock, I go get another drink. I'm about halfway down in that bottle by now. i got my courage in me. And she said, uh, you know, you, you're drinking too much. You, you ought to do something. About it. I put my finger in the face. Why don't you get out of my life? I said, you're my problem. I can't come home and have a couple of drinks without you raising hell about it. And she said, well, I would try to go, but you might try to stop me. I said, that's all you're worried about. I'll get you an escort. I went to the phone and called the sheriff's office. And I said, I'm out here having a few drinks. My wife wants to leave, but she's scared. Would you send a deputy out here to escort her off of my property? He said, sir, we don't like to get involved in domestic disputes. Can't you handle this yourself? I hung up the phone, picked it back up, called the sheriff at his house. He's my ex-blood-in-law.
1: I said, Louie, sir, Dan wants to leave. Would you send a deputy? He said, two.
2: Two cars pull up in the driveway. I invited him in. Offered them a drink. They declined. said, we on duty. I'm thinking, if you're chasing criminals, you need a damn drink. But she packed a bag, and she got in that car, and when I saw the taillights of her car go over the hill in the back of the house, I felt good. That goes my problem. But the only thing about getting drunk past night, the night before, and that's coming to the next day. You know, most normal people wake up. Not an alcoholic. Come to! <laughs> Looks like a damn dog on the expressway at Rush Isle.
1: <laughs> So I came
2: to the next morning and I said, you have messed up big time, man. You have sent your keeper away. So I called her. I knew where she'd be. She was our best friends in Atlanta. I called her and she didn't want to talk to me, but Beverly made her talk to me. And I said, uh, this wasn't the first time she left, but other times I'd always been able to talk her into coming back. I started, "What can I do to get you to come back?" She said, "I ain't coming back." I said, "Well, what can I really do to make you come back?" She said, "You need some professional help." Now, people don't ever ask this next question unless you want the answer, because well, they got the answer for you. I said, "Do you know where I can get this help?" Hell, she knew. <laughs> She had been talking to people about my behavior, and one man in particular, and she gave me this guy's name. The reason she had met this fellow, she had checked her father into the A&D ward at the Central State Hospital in Menaceville for the 13th time in three years. And she was standing there crying at the elevator, and this guy came out and said, it looks like you need somebody to talk to, come into my office. She told him about her daddy, and then without my permission, she told him about me. And he said, if you ever need me, call me at this number. It was a 24 hour day number. She said, call Jim. Maybe he can help you. Well, after we got through talking, I called him. He said, well, come out this afternoon and talk to me. I went out and talked to him, and we talked about two hours. I said, Jim, do you think I'm an alcoholic? He said, I don't know. He said, but you might ask yourself one question. I said, what's that? He said, do normal people drink like you do? Now, the people I was hanging around with drank like I did. And that was normal, but I had to admit that I might be a little overboard with this. And it's coming up on the end of November, and about the middle of December I quit traveling. And I don't travel until the middle of January because people are closing out their uh, company, the books and all, in December. They don't want to mess with you until about the middle of January. So I might got a month off there that I hunt, fish, and drink. So he said, I think you ought to go to treatment. I went to Atlanta and talked with Surgeon the next day. I said, "Uh, I'm going to treatment on December 5th. That was Monday. That was the next Monday. I said, will you come home? She said, I'll be home Saturday afternoon. We'll pack your bag and you go to treatment uh, on Monday. At quarter to five on Friday afternoon, December 2nd, 1983, I called her in Atlanta. I said, baby, you coming home tomorrow? She said, I'll be home after lunch. I said, it's going to be good to have you home. I hung up the telephone, went to the refrigerator, opened that freezer door, and got my brand-new quart of ancient age. I was in AA a long time before I got to Alcoholics Normal, so. And I started drinking it. I didn't see anything wrong with it. She don't know about it. How in the hell can it hurt? I did not know that was going to be my last drink up until the night. You know, I, I was by myself. My last drunk, I was by myself, kind of like my first sexual experience.
1: <laughs>
2: and I went to treatment on Monday. I, went to my, I was on the board of directors. We had a director's meeting on Monday, and then after that, they took me to treatment. I didn't know what treatment was, and I wasn't an alcoholic. But i tell you what got me into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. What woke me up to the fact that I had a problem. That night when we got there, the counselor took me down to detox. I was sober, but everybody had to spend one night in detox, at least one night in detox. They took her up to the office in Beverly, Sir Jane sitting there. He said, Sir Jane, do me a favor, write me a letter, and let me know a few things about Brookings, how he behaved when he's drinking. Try to be as specific as you can. Name times and dates and places, what was said, what was done. The outcome of all this. So let me know a little bit about it. Well, every day from two to four, we had group therapy. And Ken would reach down in his book every once in a while and put out a letter. He said, Mike, you want to read a letter from your wife? And Mike would read it. It would be a letter, just a, just a letter. Next day, he might pull out a letter. Joe, you want to read a letter from your wife? I kind of suspected I was going to get a letter. One day, he reaches down. He pulls out this envelope, and It's that long. And it's that thick.
1: It's 16 legal
2: pages front and back, people.
1: And I had to read
2: that jewel in front of everybody in that room. I cussed and cried and ran of the room. And Ken would pull me back in and say, finish your letter. And after that was over that afternoon, I went and sat on my bed and I said, man, you've got one hell of a problem. Children, I think that's the reason we have to write this fourth step down. We can see it in its entirety what's wrong with us. If we talk about something, we can only have one thought in our brain at a time. One, one thought. But when it's laid there in front of you and you can see it, it has a more profound impact on you. And it had an impact on me that day. I said, well, what are we going to do about this, Ken? He said, we've got a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. If you work those steps and do what they tell you to do, you're going to change he said, What you gotta change is the way you think, feel and believe. I said, Kent, how much am I thinking have I got to change? He said, Well we start with all of you got any good, we'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I started doing these steps and trying to change. I had a sponsor when I got back to Millersville, And they told me when I was in that treatment center, says, think about your past. said, you just sit down and think about what you've done in the past. I said your past is the greatest indicator of what your future's going to be like unless you have profound change in the way you think, feel, and believe. And I thought, I saw what kind of hell I had raised. And I, I wasn't even lucky to be here. Because I, I, I should have been dead the many times I was, fights I'd got in, the wrecks I had had, the shotguns and all that stuff. And I said, by God, we're going to try to do this thing. I came back to Minnesville and had a sponsor when I got there. And me and him started working together a little bit. But i done step 1 and 12. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm going to save a damn drunk in Milledgeville, Georgia. But that didn't work too good. Well, Mr. Ed died about a year after that. I got another sponsor, and he started putting me through the steps. We started doing You know, the first two steps you don't take. If you read the 12 and 12, in step 3 it says the first two steps we've been gazed in reflection. We think about what we've done. We have to be convinced that we are alcoholic and our lives are unmanageable. And then a power greater than says is going to restore us to sanity. And uh, if you've got to be restored to sanity, that means you're insane somewhere. And so I, I knew I had been insane. And so I started working these steps, and I got on the third step. It says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to cure God as we understood Him. If I could take that step 100% right then, I wouldn't the steps, I don't think. What I think I'm making a decision to do is to work step four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, so I'll be able to turn my will and my life over to God. What is my will and what is my life? My will is my thinking, and my life is the everyday actions. So what I'm doing is turning my thinking and my actions over to God and let Him direct me. I can't think my way into sober living. I've got to live my way into sober thinking. Y'all heard this before. Y'all didn't you know your sponsors told you all this. But you know, that's the reason I go to a lot of meetings. I have to be reminded of what I am because I got a good forgetter. I can get real, forget real quickly what I am. And uh, I have to be reminded all the time. And I go to meetings and I hear people talk. And I'm <clears throat> I hadn't had a desire to drink in years. It's been removed just like it promises in step 10, that this problem would be removed from us. But what I go for today is learn how to live. Bill Wilson said this is a design for living that really works. I missed that class in school that day. And I'm still learning how to live and to be happy, joyous, and free, just like my God wants me to be. It ain't that way all the time. And I, I done a, finally done a four-step. I had that four-step in the back of my briefcase. And I might be in Houston, or uh, in Miami or in Richmond, Virginia somewhere, and I'd take it out and I'd write a few things on it. And we are in, in a big book study one night. We on the fourth and fifth step. Of course, you know, I am always want to be the big shot and know everything. And uh, I'm telling everybody in that room how to work the fourth and fifth step. The guy wasn't my sponsor at the time, but he became my sponsor after that. He looked at me and he said, well, have you done a fourth and fifth step? I said, no, but I'm working on it. I went home that night, and I finished that four step, and I went to my sponsor at the Times office the next morning in Macon. I said, Tommy, I finished my four step last night. I said, if you've got any time the next couple of weeks, I'll read it to you. He said, put on the coffee pot. I'll be there at 2 o'clock this afternoon. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I thought I might have to do some editing on that thing, you know. But he came, and I read that thing to and I had 64 pages of crap, and that's what it was, all that crap I had done all my life. And I got through with it, and, and uh, I said, Tommy, what, what, what should I do with this this, this this paper? He said, well, some people keep it and some people burn it. I said, what do you think I ought to do with it? He said, some people keep it and some people burn it. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to burn it. I went out in the yard, and we, we started a little fire, and I burned 64 pages of stuff and watched it go up in smoke. And I want to tell you, I didn't feel real good when he left and go home, went home that day. Sure didn't happen to have been in Atlanta uh, shopping that day, but I was able to do what the, uh, the fifth step says. Go be by yourself for an hour, think about what you had done, take this book down and read the first five proposals, and if you think you have done a good fifth step, go to step six. And I was able to do that. But I felt drained that afternoon, but a couple of days later, the enormity of what I had done dawned on me. Here's a man I had told everything to. And the last thing he said before he left is, I love you. How could you love me knowing all my stuff? I didn't understand that. I do today. I've heard a lot of fifth step uh, in the last 27 years. And I'm the perfect person to read uh, your fourth step to. Because 30 minutes after you read it, I can't remember what you said. (laughs) You (laughs) know. Did that fifth step and I went to in the big book is only two paragraphs for step six and step seven I think a lot of people screw that that it's not a it's not very important but in 12 and 12 in the sixth step it says this is a step that separates the men from the boys so that step is all about willing I got to be willing to do all this stuff over and over and over again so I can stay sober. And that's what I do. I go to a lot of meetings. I go to five to seven meetings a week now. Not that I want a drink. That's been taken away a long time ago. I go because somebody was in that shed when I walked through the door. And I want to be there when somebody else walks through the door. And I want to be there to help if I can. I can't help everybody in the program. Some people can't be helped. But I try to be there I tell you, i I'd go to five to seven meetings a week. I don't need a meeting a week, but I don't know which one of those seven I need. So I have to go to all of them to get the one I need. I got some good sponsorship in this program. Eight and nine. I had a big list of people I had to make amends to and people I had hurt. And my mother, was it was easy to make amends to her because I wrote her a big letter and I went to her grave and I read it to her. But my dad was a different story. He was still living. He, d- he just died in, in '02, And uh, he was 93 years old when he died. And uh, I had a lot of amends to make to him. And I would go to Sandersville to make amends to him, and I'd back out every time. But one day I just went by to see him, and I said, this is a day. And I sat down, and I started making my amends to my dad and talking to him. And I started crying, and he started crying. And after about an hour and a half of talking, I said, Daddy, I need one thing from you. He said, what's that, son? I said, I need for you to tell me that you love me. He said, you know I love you. I said, I know you love me. You put shelter over my head, food on the table, clothes on my back. But you never told me out of your mouth that you love me. And I, I started telling him I loved him. I called him on the telephone. I said, Daddy, I love you. Yeah, 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 me, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I started telling him, and I, and I was about a head taller than he was, and I put my arm around his shoulder, and I pulled him up to him. I kissed him on his forehead, and I said, Daddy, I love you. Yeah, yeah, I love you too, son. Huh? And he started saying it. In the last 10 or 15 years that we were together, he could say it freely and mean it. And the last, that's the last words we said to each other. I dropped him and his wife off at our, at our house one day, and he started in the house, and I said, Oh, man, I love you. He said, I love you too, son. That was on a Monday, and the next Monday he was dead. He just killed over, just like that. And he got his wish. He wanted to get, he went just like he wanted to go. Now I, I got three children, and uh, when I got in this program, and that's the second step through me came to believe in a power grid of myself going to store sanity to get God's stuff in here. I don't want to have any. God has never done a damn thing for me. All those 911 prayers I sent up, sent up, and he's never answered any of them. I said, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. Thing. They said, you believe there's a power greater than yourself? Well, I had thought back to a couple of times at a New Year's Eve dance when 84 or uh, 54 was going out and 55 was coming in. We was at a New Year's Eve dance, and I thought this guy was making eyes at my wife, and I uh, confronted him with it. Well, he had three buddies with him. And those three brothers and him jumped on me, and everywhere I looked, there was a damn fist. <laughs> and I run my head in that fist a few times, and they throw me out the front door. That was a power greater than me. I've been a, in a few fights. That shotgun was a power greater than me.
1: <laughs>
2: and I, finally, I said, "Yeah, I believe there's a power there somewhere. I don't know where he wants to have anything to do with me now." He said, "Work the steps, and you'll find him." And I started working the steps, and they said, you know, you get to choose your power, your own, your high power. Just like Abby told Bill Wilson that day on Clinton Avenue in Brooklyn. You get to choose your own God. They said, if you could choose your God, how would you like for him to be? I said, well, if I could choose my God, I'd like for him to be kind, loving, forgiving, understanding, want the best for me. They said, why don't you pray to that God? I said, what about the preachers to pound that podium upon the things Said if you think about it, you go on ahead and do what you want. Go God's going to get you for that. See, when I came in here, they'd get you God. And they said, that's his God. You get to choose the one you want. I said, damn, that's simple. They said, it has to be for a drunk to understand it.
1: <laughs>
2: so that's the one I chose. A kind, loving, forgiving, understanding God. A God that wanted the best for me. But there's a difference in believing and trusting. I started praying to that God, but it took me a while to trust this, this would happen. But now I know it, it happens. And that's the God I had today. I, uh, had those three children, and all of them were alcoholic and drug addicts. The oldest boy, the one I adopted, we put him in treatment and in the halfway houses, and he went to jail a few times, and he wouldn't stop drinking. Daddy, AA won't work for me. I said, No, Troy, AA won't work for you. You've got to work for it. Go to meetings, work the steps, get a sponsor. He wouldn't do it. He was living the last five years of his life He was living with my ex-wife, hadn't worked, drinking, drugging. She went to wake him up one morning, and he was 43 years old, and he had died in his sleep from alcoholism. Got a son, another son. He's uh, 47 now, and he's been to all kind of halfway houses. He's been to jail. He's been to treatment centers. He's been to prison. And he won't go to AA. And he's living with his mother. He hadn't worked in about 10 years. My ex-wife, surgery has, has been trying to get her to go to Adelon for at least 25 years. And she hadn't made a meeting yet. They're my children. I've got to help them. She don't understand that she can love them to death. And it's what she is doing. And I don't know how you, how you fight that. Hey, we don't fight it. We just have to accept this is the way it is with them. I got a daughter. She's forty-five now. She's in the program, and she needs it just like I need it. And uh, on uh, December fifth of '09, I was down at uh, Callaway Gardens at a thing called uh, Woodstock. Uh, huh? Yeah, Woodsocket of South. I was sitting there talking with Tom Iverson. A lot of y'all know him. We was having a little place called Crickets. I got a telephone call from my daughter. She says, uh, says, uh, there was a wreck a while ago, and my daughter's dead, my granddaughter, her daughter. She was hit by a drunk driver and killed. 21 years old. Beautiful blonde hair. She just, she was just slim, trim. She, she wanted to be a model at one time. She could have been, if she'd have worked for it. see, she's not even going to grow up. She, she's dead. Uh, at the same intersection, just out in the country, about, oh, I don't know, two weeks ago, my daughter was coming to town. She had her daughter in the car. And a guy ran the same stop sign and she t boned this car. And uh, there was two women in the front seat, two babies in the back. One was three months old, one was three years old. The three month old baby got killed because this woman ran the stop sign at the same place my granddaughter got killed. Out in the country, in the middle of nowhere. These things are Tragedies. Stuff happens. What do we do when they happen? We have to call them the power greater than ourselves. And we know where that power comes from. I love this program Alcoholics Moments. I love the history of it. Thirty-nine and I have been up in the St. John's Bay, Vermont. We came all the way down to East Dorset. We've been to Founders Day. We've been to Stephen Stones. I read books on, on Dr. Bob and Bill. You know, we quote Bill Wilson a lot because he lived 12, 21 years after Dr. Bob died. But there's something that Dr. Bob said in his writing, uh, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. He said, there's two ways to break anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film and not giving your full name in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, if we get so damn anonymous in meetings, we're not good to anybody else or ourselves. You know, I go to meetings all the time. i got people I've been going to meetings with for six or eight months now, and I don't know, I couldn't get in touch with them if I had to. They're Jim or Bob or Joe or Myrtle or something. They never give the last name. It tells us plainly where to break anonymity. If the the level of press, radio, and film, we don't do that. We don't have any anonymity within here. That's the way I see it. That's the way Dr. Bob sees it. And I always give my full name wherever I'm at. Now, I've done radio commercials on, uh, not commercial, but a radio program on alcoholism. Me and a friend of mine, we went to the radio station. we done it just like it came out of the PICPC book. And we, I had to use another name. Because you see, where I live, there's a lot of people would with, with Brookings there's a lot of people with Beck. And a lot of times when I'm telling people my name is Brookings Beck, they think I'm double talking to something. But my mother was a Brookins. she married a Beck, and they named me Brookings Beck, so I used my first name.
1: <laughs>
2: At that radio station, I used my first name, which is Claude. Because if I have used Brookings, everybody in town would have known who in the hell it was. Hal used his first name. And we did... We are supposed to get to meeting out that what we do, what is our primary purpose is to stay sober and help another suffering alcoholic, but I can't do it if I'm anonymous. We want the people to know where the program is and what we do and what we don't do. It's very important to do, tell them what we don't do. We're not doctors or lending institutions or housing authorities and stuff like that. Now we have, a, in Georgia, I don't know where you have it, in other states or not, but we have private probation They call it a JAG, alternative something. And they've asked me to come down sometime and talk to the the people that own probation. Well, there's uh, about three or four people that goes in at the time, and every one of us has lost somebody in a tragic accident or something because of drinking. And the first time I went, and I had a picture of my granddaughter, and I told them about what happened. And uh, I started to leave that night after it was all over. They handed me an envelope. I thought it was just a thank-you card, and I put it in my pocket, and I got home, and I opened it up, and there was money in there. The next morning, I went back. I said, I can't take your money. They said, well, we didn't I said, no, nope, I can't talk about something that saved my life and my sanity and my marriage and take money for doing it. I said, I just won't do it. I gave the money back. The second time I went, the lady says, will you take the money? I said, no. The third time I went, the guy says, you don't take the money, do you? I said, no.
1: <laughs>
2: but they paid him to come in. I won't take that. I can't take money for something that saved my life and saved the lives of so many people. And our primary purpose is to stay sober and help another stuff, an alcoholic. I'm staying sober tonight. Tonight's Friday night. It's five minutes after nine. And I'm sober. In my right mind, I got my clothes on. What is it about us drunks that we get drunk? We don't take our clothes off.
1: <laughs> if I did
2: that, the people would probably say, "Thank God for clothes."
1: <laughs>
2: and I love that, cos I love you people. Y'all come down to Millersville and see us. You know, Millersville used to be the largest insane asylum in the world. It's not anymore. And I tell people they let us out sometimes. <laughs> It's a joy being here with you all, and I hope you all have a wonderful weekend like I'm planning on doing. Thank you for having me here.